0: Welcome back to the Brew Theology Podcast. This is Ryan, Janelle, and I are here with Elizabeth and Caitlin Masher-Mace. The topic tonight is reforming Western stereotypes on Buddhisms. You heard that right. A look at violence in the Buddhist world. So before we get into that, I don't know when you're going to be listening to this podcast, by the way. This could be like in August or July. I don't, we don't know. You know, we've got a lot, we got we'll a lot of things brewing. We'll get it out there eventually. Yeah, we've got Wild Goose. By the time you hear this, we probably have already have come back from the Wild Goose we're Festival goosed. in North Carolinas, in the, in the North Carolinas, yeah. yeah. And we have things coming up this fall that we just started talking about, but they're probably going to happen. So mm-hmm. Janelle had a great idea the other day. What do y'all think? So we're thinking about doing a altruist
1: called Green Theology. And bring in some of our great uh, eco-theologians to talk about the planet and climate and how that relates to what it means
0: to be religious in this world. So we're looking at that for the fall, maybe. What else are we thinking about? Possibly uh, partnering with someone else, to not, not to be named, just in case it doesn't happen. Yes. With an event that we can't tell you about, because it might not even be in the works. Yes. But get excited. Get excited, because we'll <laughs> do something. Yes, so, also, uh, what we do, by the way, on all these podcasts, as many of you know, this is a microcosm of what you will hear at the pub on a Thursday night. So, we bring in speakers in Denver every four weeks. We come back to the podcast with a few people, and we rehash it. A lot of the same material, but it's always going to be a new flavor. It's like when you brew a beer, if you're brewing small batch beer, and you throw in experimental stuff within your batch. Like, you say you might be doing an IPA, Janelle's favorite, but we, you know, th- this one may be a... Uh, we may bring in some different kinds of hops and some different flavors. So, uh, anyway, we would, if you want to be a part of one of these communities, go to brewtheology.org. All the information's there. Email Janelle at yes. brewtheology.org or Ryan at brewtheology.org. We're on Twitter, brew underscore theology. It's the only underscore we have. Facebook and Instagram is at brewtheology. And please uh, go to iTunes, share this, rate it, review it. I say that, you know, Why? Because people actually listen to you, the more people that share yep. it, that's, what, that's amazing what the internet does. Like, oh, wow, there's like 20 shares with this one show. It must be pretty good. So, so just to
1: show you the power of the internet, and we'll let you know if this works out, Hendrix Gin, if you're listening, <laughs> your new special edition is phenomenal. And we would be absolutely happy to talk about you Every podcast from now until eternity if you want to send us some. So just email Janelle, J-A-N-E-L, at brewtheology.org, and let us know how we can help you out with advertising.
0: So everybody knows Hendrix. This is the Midsummer Solstice. It's a limited release, and it's very floral and lovely. It is fantastic. So good. Okay, so tonight, Caitlin... Kaitlyn is a minister's assistant at the Tri-State Denver Buddhist Temple and is a Jodo Shinshu Buddhist uh, seminary student. She's going to be ordained soon. By the time you hear this, she will have already been ordained. Woo! And if you guys uh, remember Diana Thompson, also from, oh, I've heard Tri-State, that's because she's been on the podcast several times before. They're friends, and, and I figure a friend of Diana's is a friend of ours. So welcome to the Bruce Theology Podcast. Well, thank you. We're gonna drink gin and talk about um, violence. <laughs> so when Diana was on about a year, two years ago for the first time, she talked about the compassionate Buddha. And tonight we're gonna be talking about the violent Buddha.
1: Do we need cigars with this? <laughs> we Do we have need cigars? <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: so you're gonna, yeah, you're gonna make some people cry and some like, you know, maybe smash their. Buddhas? Can I even say that? Is it a you thing? I, yeah, it's all impermanent, so it's okay yeah. if you break them. So yeah, it is all good. Actually, that should be a part a part of the practice. Yeah, regardless if you're violent or not.
1: Actually, funny <laughs> funny story, and this is a complete uh, offside of that. Uh, home altars, home butsudans for Jodo Shinshu Buddhists. Once you're done with it, once you die, the idea is to burn them because they're impermanent, and you don't actually need to hold on to them. So generally, traditionally, they're not passed on. Anything else? We we still pass them on. Mine's actually passed on, but. Um, we have a big bond for every year, and we burn them all, because it's impermanent, and it's okay to burn that stuff. Can you imagine burning crosses,
0: crucifixes, family Bibles? Oh, my gosh. I can't imagine, and I don't, I don't think that's a good thing to imagine. <laughs> Probably not the topic for this
1: exact podcast.
0: <laughs> oh, wow. Okay, so your, your, sto- your story as a soon-to-be, already-ordained minister in the Jodo Shinshu Buddhist tradition didn't start there. You've got a. a, a I'd love to hear your story. Uh, I'd Love for the listeners to hear your story because you okay. grew up. You grew up in a very different context than Diana did, who did. was just Buddhist the whole way through. Mm-hmm. Uh, so tell us a little bit about your religious faith trajectory and how you ended up as a ordained minister.
1: Sure, um, I grew up in a pretty conservative Christian household. Um, I went to Lutheran service every Sunday, uh, ELCA, and um, so, like habitual Sunday school attendee, try to get that perfect attendance ribbon every year. And uh, so as I as I grew up, I went to Catholic school starting in seventh grade. So I'd go to mass once or twice a week, and then I'd go to uh, Lutheran service on Sundays. And so it's it's interesting looking back at it. I even graduated within one of the nicest Catholic cathedrals in the States down in uh, Santa Fe, so St. Francis Cathedral. Beautiful. Um, I mean, it totally was made with slave labor, but, you know, it's beautiful.
0: <laughs> there may be some of those jokes in there. If you're listening, you're like, do I laugh? Do I not? I don't know. That was an actual co- comment. But if you could only be here right now.
1: <laughs> My delivery's a little dry. I apologize, y'all. It's, awesome.
0: it's good. It's so it's awesome. good.
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm a New Mexican. I can't help it. It's just kind of, it's kind of bred in. Uh, yeah, so no, I grew up um, a pretty hardcore Christian, jamming out to Michael W. Smith when I was a kid. I remember the first time I tried to buy one of those um, Parental Guidance CDs. It was, it was Mace, because it was my same as my last name, and I was really excited to get that Mace album. And uh, my mom had to take me to Hastings, which was like the best buy of New Mexico, because we don't have nice things. And... Uh, <laughs> and I go and I get the CD and I'm like 15 years old like I'm, I've got my learner's permit I'm like yeah man I'm like I'm about to get my own, my own truck you know little Toyota pickup and I was like I'm gonna have mace in there it's gonna be great like puffs on the back on the b-track it's gonna be amazing and I get the parental guidance one and I look at my mom because you know at the time you had to be like 17 or 18 to buy these and she goes you're gonna sin in your car <laughs> what would Jesus think Caitlin yes now, of course, she didn't know I was checking out the cheerleaders at this exact time in my life, so, I
0: mean... I was going to say, there's other ways to sit in your car, but, yeah.
1: I worked on it, I'll tell you that
0: much. But uh,
1: there, there were a lot of other things going on in my head at that exact moment in time, but I was like, no. And so that's how I ended up with the uh, edited version of the Mace album. <laughs> None of my friends wanted to listen to that one, I'll tell you that much. No one was ripping that CD.
0: <laughs> so good.
1: But yeah, no, I, uh, I made it through college, I went to the Colorado School of Mines, majored in mechanical engineering and Japanese language, and um, 2005 ended up in Japan, uh, and accidentally stumbled upon a Buddhist temple where I ended up spending the night, and it blew my mind and started a long journey with Buddhism, which settled at uh, the Tri-State Denver Buddhist Temple here in Denver. Um and uh, actually studying under Reverend Thompson, like she had just just been assigned there. and I used to go to study classes and everything else, and the next thing I know, I'm in seminary, and here we are. <laughs> so went from being a petroleum engineer to a Buddhist minister. That's the normal track I hear.
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah there's crazier stories, yeah.
1: <laughs> One or two.
0: <laughs> uh, okay, so here you are, uh, you know you're in this... What I what I think from what I, little knowledge that I know, and I think we all know from our community of the Jodo Shinshu tradition, which I still I think I'm finally saying it right after all these years. Thank you, Diana. You'd be ha- you be happy to know if you're listening right now. Is uh, it seems like it's a very it's a very compassionate, loving, gracious, all the flowers and feels that go along with it. Of course, without the meditation, from what we understand now, more more smoking cigarettes and less meditation. Uh, but that you know that that said. Uh, you're, you're sort of turning... Well, you're, you're, un, you're unveiling. There's a revelation here. There's an, there's an apocalypse upon us. And, and you're saying that uh, we got to look at history in, in the light of which we should read history as, a, as an objective human being, as a, as a community and as a world. So I'm going to start off with this quote that you gave us from the BBC because this seems to be what we all think. It says that nonviolence is at the heart of Buddhist thinking and behavior. The first of the five precepts that all Buddhists should follow is, quote, Avoid killing or harming any living thing. Buddhism is essentially a peaceful tradition. Nothing in Buddhist scripture gives any support to the use of violence as a way to resolve conflict. Okay, hear that again. Nothing in Buddhist scripture gives any support to the use of violence as a way to resolve conflict. And then we have this 2,500 years of Buddhisms, different expressions, which I'd never heard Buddhisms, by the way, which is kind of like in Christianity. I don't know if you Christianities know, but there's lots of people say, what kind of Christian are you? And I'm like, well, how long of a conversation do you, you know? But there's, uh, yeah, to just label somebody as a Buddhist or as a Christian. Um, so first off, let's let's speak of the differences, right, between the modern Western Buddhism that we all think of, like this quote right here, and then where you're headed in this overall thesis, if you will.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, well, here's, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go ahead and read a quote from another Buddhist sutra because I I really love this BBC quote here that uh, makes an absolute statement and if there's one truth in Buddhism there is no absolute statements Uh, this comes from the Bodhisattva Gokhara Apavisaya Vakarvana Nidesa Sutra and yeah, I don't know if I said that right because uh, Sanskrit and me aren't great friends But uh, So this is from that sutra. A king who is well prepared for battle, having used skillful means in this way, even if he kills or wounds opposing troops, has little moral fault or demerit, and there will certainly be no bad karmic result. Why is that? It's because the action was conjured with the intentions of compassion and not abandoning. On the basis of having sacrificed himself and his wealth to protect living things, and for the sake of his family, wife, and children, there is immeasurable merit even strongly increases. So literally what this says is if a king vanquishes his enemies with righteous violence, as long as that violence is righteous, he's good to go, and his roots will actually increase, and his merit will be better. Kind of the exact opposite of what we're seeing in this BBC statement, as this is a doctrinal part of the polycanon. canon. Um yeah <laughs> that's really similar to um a concept that many military Christians believe, which is called the just war theory, and that if it is a just war that if you're stopping something truly evil, then it's okay and and I actually believe that, but um there's a commonality there that surprises me
0: so what I do find interesting on this rabbit trail here if i if I, if I can just because I, I hear just war and I think about our tradition and all the people who've talked about just war. From what I understand in the context of when that came out, it was to limit wars because wars were just flying out in the name of God left and right. And this, and this whereas, I, I, is there a distinction between, I think the contextual view of just war was to limit wars versus this?
1: So I think it's, it's the more the starting point is within Buddhism, the idea is that there should be no war. So there is there is truth in that BBC statement in that you shouldn't instantly be going to armed conflict. And what you're saying here is once you've gone through all of the circumstances and causes um, that would limit warfare, and you get to the point where warfare is the only option, that you have ju- uh, used valid compassion and that you have used um, wisdom, and thusly this becomes upaya.
0: Yeah. I was wondering when that word was going to come up. Upaya. <laughs> upaya. upaya.
1: Yeah. So Upaya, um, <laughs> you've used Upaya and Leslie, you're acting for the causes and conditions that happen in that exact moment. So you have no choice but to fight. But if you're going to fight, you must fight all out and you must fight to the conclusion of the
0: battle. But then you have people being people. And they continue with this sort of way of thinking of well, I mean, I can I can justify just about anything, because power power is a real thing, and if I'm a human being and my tribe is is uh, going to be torn down by this other king and this other oppressor, then I gotta. So do you do you use scripture the way that I guess every religion has used scripture to then justify fighting other powerful kings and rulers?
1: Yeah, I think absolutely, and. This this scripture itself, the earliest copies of it come from about the 4th century CE, and it comes out of Tibet. And so whether or not this was something that was actually delivered by Shakyamuni Buddha, the historical Buddha, or not, um, is something that's definitely up to uh, argument. And in Buddhism, that's not an uncommon thing for us to argue about, because all the original scriptures, all the original sutras, um, would have been either orally transmitted or written down on... Um, Medium that wouldn't last for long periods of time, so banana leaves, organic medium, not your really good papyrus that you see coming out of um, Egypt and all those other, uh, Palestine and those other places where you get the actually a better writing tradition than you will see um, through the Indian Dharmic traditions. And so, this could be a sutra that was actually given by Shakyamuni Buddha, or it could be a compilation of other teachings, um, or it could have been something written to justify means. And for us, that's not as big of a deal as you might see within like a
0: Judeo-Christian tradition. Would it matter if it's the, from the original source or not? No. Okay. Um. So out, outside of just this sort of just war theory kind of a, a concept, which I think our, the listeners will understand that to a degree, uh, Can can you just kind of go through, you went through all these different eras and stories from your tradition to China and so forth. Yeah. Uh, I thought that was fascinating, and I know that most people who are listening to Facebook Live aren't the same ones that are, are listening to the podcast, so can you go through some of that for us tonight?
1: Yeah, sure. I'd love to. Um, so, and this, so the story I'm going to tell here is directly related to Jodo Shinshu Buddhism, so this isn't the story of all Buddhisms, but rather the story of the Buddhist school, sect, belief system that I belong to. So, and it's, it's a unique, uh, unique school, unique belief system, while it has many of the same practices that you may see in China or in any of the Southeast Asian countries, Mongolia, and other Japanese forms of Buddhism, we are unique in a couple uh, factors. And they're all going to play into how our history evolved. Um, so, Shinshu Buddhism has one practice. And we would argue that it's not even a practice, Um, but rather an act of gratitude, and that is saying the Nembutsu, or the Namo Amida Butsu. So when we say Namo Amida Butsu, we are literally saying, I take refuge in the Buddha of infinite light and life. And that is the only actual practice we have. We chant, and we do a lot of other stuff, but it's all in order for us to more fully focus um, both our beliefs and our understanding and our lives around the Nembutsu. Um, this is important because this practice is actually goes back as far as Mahayana Buddhism goes. And there's a lot of famous sutras, the larger sutra, the smaller sutra, the meditation sutra, um, and several others that focus directly on this practice and famous Buddhist teachers throughout history, all the way from Nagarjuna, who's considered the second Buddha, all the way through uh, Shinran, who's my teacher, or this head of my lineage. Um, so Shinran head of my lineage, um, born in the 1100s, died in the 1200s, was a Tendai monk, Tendai being a form of esoteric Buddhism. Uh, and he started on Mount Hiei in Japan and was dissatisfied with the teachings in which he was receiving. And he didn't think he'd be able to reach enlightenment. Um, there's a lot of really fun dream visions that's involved with this. The story is really involved into a great theatrical story. Um, I'm, positive that certain aspects are true in that um, we have letters from his wife actually describing a lot of these things um, and how he experienced them, but we also use them in ways to teach lessons. Uh, but Shinron came down off Mount Hiei, which is this giant monastery area outside of the city of Kyoto where there was 30, 40,000 monks. And went and found the rock star of his time, a guy named Honan, who also was feeling disaffected, who also felt like he needed to come off the mountain and start teaching this Nembutsu practice to everyone that would hear. So not only, you know, no longer meditating, no longer doing these really difficult practices, but rather just... Saying the Nembutsu and spreading that practice to everybody. The idea is they thought that they could save everybody through this Nembutsu practice. And obviously, it's still propagating in the fact that the Japanese mission came over here to the States in the 1800s and we formed the temple like we have here in Denver and they got me a six foot two tall Irish girl. So obviously, things are happening. Um,. But we continue, we continue on, and Shinron comes down off the mountain and learns his teaching from Honan, and they can start to proclamate it out. And Honan actually has all these followers and they, they write thesis and start spreading it, and it really starts pissing everybody off. And you got the old school schools in the city of Nada, and you've got Tendai and everyone else, and they're going to the emperor and they're going to the leaders at the time, saying this is causing disharmony in the country. And they finally get to the point where they say Honan is going to be shipped off to the southern part of the country. Shinran is one of his followers, even though not like one of his major followers, but was definitely within like the inner circle. He's shipped off far to the north, and the guys that were really the major followers of Honan got their heads cut off um, because they were causing disharmony in the Sangha, uh, disharmony within the Buddhist community. So the Sangha is kind of like um, the congregation in Christian language. Um, however, there's more to it than that. It's it's deeper, especially within monastic traditions, in that the Sangha um, are those that you live with. So if I was a nun or a monk and I'm spending the rest of my life in a monastery, those that I live in the monastery with are my Sangha. And there's a lot of rules governing the Sangha. They're called the Vinya, um, because if you're living with the same 72 people for, and 72 is just a number I pulled out of the air for the next, you know, 70 years. And one of them is a total tool bag. You're going to be very super unhappy. And so they were applying this to everybody and, um, basically saying these people are causing disharmony in the sangha, And this is one of the major sins. you What kind
0: of disharmony leads to beheadings?
1: The kind where you're giving, uh, peasants hope. You give peasants hope and they're going to want more. And that's a long tradition of things we try not to do, especially within um, more dictatorship rule, which we were seeing in Japan at that time. So you can start giving peasants hope and you start, you know, slandering the right dharma and all these other things. And the next thing you know, we got to behead these people because that is a lesson. So Shinran sent way up north, Honan sent way down south. The student never sees the teacher again as Honan passes away before Shinran makes his way down south. Um, However, Honan's able to argue his case over the next 10 years, and eventually everybody's pardoned, which is why Shinran was able to continue to teach and and didn't lose his head. Um, (laughs) So he continues on south and teaches for the next uh, 60 years. Um, And Jodo Shinshu is born even though it's just kind of this faith tradition of farmers and peasants and uh, the Barakumen, the untouchables, those that work with meat, those that kill, undertakers, not really like, you know, your uppity-uppities. Even though we did have samurai and daimyo and like strong, important people that follow this faith, it wasn't really, you know, like the... Um, it wasn't always the top class people.
0: This is, this is like similar to a, a reformation would be like an actual practice of religion for the people.
1: Yeah, in fact, um, it's pretty common to compare Martin Luther to Shinron Shonen. That's a pretty common construction uh, when doing Buddhist Christian studies. There's a lot of articles and a lot of papers written on calling Shinron the Martin Luther of Japan, which is ironic since Shinron was only about 250, 300 years before Martin Luther, but you know, that's fine. <laughs> And he didn't, he didn't nail a bunch of stuff to a church door. He, uh, he got his buddies beheaded. Um, but, you know. Uh, so Shinran spends the rest of his time, ends up uh, dying, and his followers build a mausoleum to him, which is named Otani Mausoleum. And this becomes a place where pilgrims are coming. Shinran never wanted a temple built after him and never felt himself the leader of a sect. In fact, he died assuming that the teaching would just continue on and that he would just be a minor footnote. Um wasn't really true because he was so loved by everybody, and his daughter ended up um his daughter and her husband built this mausoleum and built all these um shrines to him, not to him, but like to remember him, that's way to proclamate the teachings. And over the next hundred and fifty years, this builds up into an actually pretty good-sized temple. And that's where the problems start again. <laughs> Because by this time, they start pulling members away and funds away and attention away from Tendai, where Shinran and his teacher Honan originally came from. And Tendai has a lot of problems with this. And so they come down off of Mount Hiei, storm down the mountain, uh, you know, just think of, like the Mongolian horde in, in uh, South Park. or. <laughs> They come down and they uh they come down with their warrior monks, which were definitely a thing actually. Even though we see them like in cartoons and um, video games, they were actually a thing. Came down, broke up the mausoleum, burned everything down, killed a bunch of our priests and the leader at the time, uh, Shinron's ninth grandson or ninth great grandson, a direct re- descendant guy named Renyo, heads to the hills and starts building up support in other places and around him build something called the Eco-iki. Eco meaning single-minded, Iki meaning league or group, or uh, in this case army. and um, kind of fight back against Tendai and kind of continue to spread the proclamations of the teaching and kind of just give the idea that you know you're not going to be able to push this around and eventually peace is made and we go back and rebuild a new temple. Uh, a really beautiful piece of land that we got from um, tent, er, that we got from Mount Hiei overlooking a bay um, over which eventually becomes the city of Osaka. Um, so we built a giant temple there. And for the next 150, 200 years, everything's great. We continue to grow and grow and grow. And we have all these temples built out in the country that end up having towns around them that don't pay taxes because we were just keeping all the money for ourselves. And they all turn into forts. And... Japan was really splintered at this time, and so they uh, they don't really have a leader. The emperor is there, but the emperor has very little power, and so Jodo Shinshu is consolidating a lot of power. Well, a couple warlords pop up during this time, and one of the most famous ones is a guy named Odo Nobunaga. And there's a lot of samurai dramas written about him and there's a lot of uh, movies and stuff. You can actually go on Netflix and I think there's three or four different Odo Nobunaga films on Netflix right now. Um, He was apparently quite the handsome fellow, Um, not an authority on handsome fellows, but (laughs) I hear he was good looking and he got a lot of following after him and he was not Jodo Shinshu and viewed us as a threat and um, actively attacked Shin temples in order to consolidate his power base, which was not Jodo Shinshu. And we fought back. The Iko Iki formed up again. So the Iko Iki would form up and disband as needed and actually would sometimes form up, you know, under the command of Jodo Shinshu and sometimes would be Shin followers forming up not under the command of the church itself. And so it kind of did it. It was an organic thing that wasn't really like we weren't handing out uniforms. But that being said, they were our followers. Um, so the iki, uh, the iki would build up, and in this case they built up again, and we were actually able to hold off a many-year siege by Odo Nobunaga um, and fought back in a lot of places, and we actually teamed up with other Buddhist sects so the Shingon Buddhists, super, super esoteric guys that have super secret sauce where like you have to be in for like 20 or 30 years to learn all the super secret teachings that I don't even know what they are because they're still super secret. Uh, but I know they do have, yeah, yeah it's pretty cool. They uh, they do have a really cool fire ritual that they do that they will let you see, but there's a lot of other stuff. They have this belief that um, it's not chanting or reciting that brings you enlightenment, but the, actually the acts, the esoteric acts that bring you enlightenment and you have to um, have that knowledge. You can't just give it around freely. You have to work your way into it. Um, and this came out of China and there's actually some esoteric sex in China. So you can actually see the migration coming over from India through Tibet, through China for these esoteric sex. But at the same time they formed an army and we formed an army and we came together and we fought against the daimyos. Uh, but eventually we, we hold them off for a long time, but eventually we do lose um And the temple's burnt down, but right around the same time, Oda Nobunaga dies. And a guy named uh, Tokugawa Ieyasu takes over. Tokugawa's a lot more um, sympathetic to our cause and sympathetic to Shin Buddhism. But at the same time, he sees this as a giant threat. And so he goes in, and like any other dynastic um, anything, there's always the son that gets to inherit everything and the son that doesn't. And so Tokugawa whispers in the sun's ear that doesn't and is able to actually create a giant rift within our tradition. And thusly, we see a separation of Jodo Shinshu into two separate schools, Um, although in actuality, there's actually 10 schools, but there's two major schools, uh, which becomes Honganji-ha, which is us, or Nishi Honganji, which means east, and Higashi Honganji, which means... Flip that. Higashi Honganji, which means east. Nishi Honganji, which means west. And we are Nishi Honganji here at TSTBT. Higashi uh, Honganji. There's a couple of temples here in the states. Um, Nishi's a little bit bigger to this day. But basically, what it what it came down to is our temple in Osaka burnt down. They didn't let us rebuild in Osaka, but they gave us a bunch of land in Kyoto, which was even better because that's the imperial capital and it's kind of moving on up. And there's two temples built. They're three blocks from each other. They dislike each other. And they are the two head temples of our two sects. First church and second church. I was going to say they're
0: quite similar story. Indeed. Hmm. Huh. Okay. So here we are. (laughs) Modern day. Is, is, are there modern day issues? I mean, because a lot of this stuff historically, we we can all say all of our traditions—Catholic, Protestant, Eastern Orthodox—I mean, you name it—in and Christianity, and Buddhism, same thing. What about modern modern day uh, within your own tradition and outside of it? What what kind of violence is being done in the name of not God, but in faith practice, people?
1: Uh, in the name of the Dharma, maybe would be a way to put it. Um... Within Shin Buddhism, we've stepped back a lot. There is not a whole ton of conflict. There's some issues within the Otaniha sect, the the Higashi sect. It has more to do with money and doctrinal disagreements, but they're not stabbing each other anymore, which is solid. We've we've moved forward in Japanese uh, Buddhism. Uh, however, there is a lot of violence in Buddhism throughout the world. Um, we've got violence in Burma. We've got violence in Sri Lanka. We've got violence in Thailand. Um Burma Myanmar depending upon how you want to, which word you want to use uh, for a long time there was uh, actually standing armies that would define themselves as Buddhists so the uh, the Karen people's Buddhist Army and they actually wore the flag on the side of their uniform of the um, the international Buddhist flag and so when they fought they went in under the Buddhist flag fighting against uh, Muslims sometimes fighting against other Buddhists um, fighting for their religious rights and their ethnic rights
0: and um so is that, is that all about survival or is that about not just survival but um i i need to, i need to be in power it has, so really power is about survival
1: and I, I think in the karen people there's a little bit of all those things um they were like a lot of burmese people deeply segregated based upon um race or perceived racial differences from one group to another and whether or not there's in power and the military junta which ran Burma for so long would single out different ethnic groups um and uh religion while important to them wasn't key and they looked to certain leaders as figureheads and everything else and so there was violence done in that and now that they the junta no longer has absolute power Buddhists have come together to say the Muslims have caused all the problems and they've gone ahead and killed all of them, or working on it. Um, and there's different times that different monks have been able to say, you know, this is against the teaching, it's against the Dharma, it's against the family, and thusly we have to commit violence, whether, in, whether explicit or implicit violence. And there's, there's really a differentiation between those two. So if we look at, like, implicit violence that also becomes explicit. We can talk about like self-immolation of Vietnamese monks during the, World War, or during the Vietnam War. Um, they're not harming anyone else by lighting themselves on fire. However, they cause a violence-like reaction to those that see this. And so in a lot of ways, that's sometimes the most effective violence because we all, every time we look at that picture, we think, oh my God, that could be me on fire. Oh wow, that would hurt really bad. And wow, someone had so much faith or so much belief or something else that they set themselves on fire as an example against this. And because it's done in the name of religion and especially in the name of a, as proclaimed by the BBC, completely peaceful religion, this means more than it would if it was done as a suicide bomber running into a marketplace in Kabul, even though in, in essence the, the act is almost exactly the same. And so it then becomes about our perception. So it may be perceived completely differently by us in the West versus those in Vietnam or those in any other Buddhist country. And that's kind of, that picture became very, very important to us in the West. Because Buddhists aren't supposed to do that, that's not how we do.